The kids are with us. I would have told more jokes in this sermon if I knew that. Uh, found out this morning. But this is a story about siblings trying to destroy each other. So maybe relevant. Um, or maybe, maybe not. Oof. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. Um, <laughs> Thomas Kelly, a Christian contemplative, writes this. Out in front of us is the drama of men and of nations, seething, struggling, laboring, dying. But within the silences of the souls of all, an eternal drama is ever being enacted. It is the drama of the hound of heaven, baying relentlessly upon the track of man. It is the drama of the lost sheep, Wandering in the wilderness, restless and lonely, feebly searching while over the hills comes the whisper of the shepherd. An eternal drama is ever being enacted, though today it is hard to believe that the drama of today has anything to do with heaven. When the headlines are dominated by talks of nuclear war and white nationalism is carrying torches through our cities making claims and marking territories, it is hard to see the eternal drama of the hound of heaven playing out, poetic as it is, when the drama of our lives is dominated by characters called hate and cancer and anxiety. These characters waltz on and off the stage without any apparent pattern or purpose. But Thomas Kelly wants to remind us that beyond the seething and struggling and dying, there is something else at work. The drama of the hound of heaven is playing out in the lives of people from River North to West Garfield Park, from the boroughs of New York to the back roads of South Dakota. It is the drama of the good shepherd relentlessly pursuing the lost and the downtrodden. This is the story that has been unfolding since the foundations of the earth. God, the hound of heaven, in search of each person. And this summer, we've been looking at Genesis, reading essentially what are the stories, the first accounts of this hound of heaven searching out his people. So we read the story of Abraham and how God chose him and pursued him and stayed with him. We read about how Abraham and Sarah laugh. Abraham falls on his face laughing. Sarah is caught snickering behind a door when she is told that at 90 she is going to have a child, even though it is no longer with her in the way of women, the text tells us. Abraham and Sarah laughed, and perhaps God did too. And we heard the story about Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham fears that it turns out that the Lord God is going to be like all the other gods in Canaan and require a pound of flesh, that the hound of heaven needs blood to be content with good reason, he's afraid. But God stays the hand of Abraham and walks hand in hand with Isaac, Isaac, laughter, the rest of Isaac's life. We come to Isaac's sons, Esau the older and Jacob the younger. Jacob's a snake in the grass. He steals uh, his brother's birthright. He lies to his father. He leaves the family in disgrace, is out in the wilderness. And when God finally catches up with him, rather than give him the hell he deserves, he, God gives him heaven. <laughs> Unfortunately, and this is where we left last time, 
Unfortunately, Jacob can't accept the reality that God is not a deal broker. That God is a shepherd in search of sheep and that Jacob is just a sheep, not a deal broker himself. He doesn't have to do anything to be a part of God's covenant love. Jacob goes on to steal from his uncle Laban and he ends up on the run from him. Jacob marries both of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, but he plays favorites among them and they begin to hate each other. Leah, who Jacob doesn't love, has six children. Rachel has none. Just like her grandmother Sarah, she is barren until a pretty late age. So Rachel has the same thing Sarah did. Rachel has her maid lie with Jacob to produce children. Leah does the same thing. So now Jacob has 10 children and finally Rachel gets pregnant, gives birth to a son and they name him Joseph. And here is the opening scene from Joseph's life. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought a bad report to them, of, of them to their father. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem in Israel. Jacob said to Joseph, aren't your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. He answered, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brother, he said. Tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. That he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of that robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There's no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of Joseph is the final tale in Genesis before we get to Exodus, which is kind of the, the main course in the Torah. 
Joseph's story gets the final 13 chapters of Genesis. It's like almost, almost a third of the entire book is this story of Joseph. Today we start the story. Next week we're going to read its conclusion, how it ends with Joseph and his brothers. You're probably familiar with the story, but we'll save the end till later. These 13 chapters in Genesis do a few things. One, they tell the story of how the people of Israel, the Israelites, the Jacobites, got to Egypt Um, explain how they ended up being so numerous with all of these brothers in Egypt. And they also tell the story uh, of how these tribes sort of came to have their reputation, um, where the tribes came from, and how they got to Egypt. But beyond filling in some of the historical gaps, the story of Joseph has as many morals and lessons as any great tale. If the Broadway musical, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat has it right, then the point of this story about Joseph, the dreamer, is that you are what you feel. And Reuben was from the panhandle of Texas, the accent. Basically, this is a story about a guy who had a dream and made it happen. That's the moral of the story in that musical. It's a great musical. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's really good. I watched it this week. Um, Some see Joseph as a Christ figure. He is sold for 20 shekels by his brother Judah. Jesus is sold for 30 shekels by Judas. There are some similarities in their story. In the end of the story, Joseph acts as sort of a savior to the nations. He earns that reputation. Jesus, in the end, is known as a savior to the nations. So there are definitely some parallels between Jesus and Joseph. And I think that's led to some problems in how we understand this story. Because if we begin reading Joseph's story through the lens of him being Christ-like, I think we miss the point. If the story starts off with a Joseph who can do no wrong, who is this model 17-year-old boy, then it becomes a story about someone who is martyred for being right. And it becomes about God helping Joseph get his revenge on his brothers. There is this sweet moment of justice in the end when Joseph stands in front of them. See, look at me. I was right and you were wrong. But that's not the point of the story. But a lot of, I, a lot of commentaries have this really high view of Joseph from the start. Calvin says that the brothers have no just ground for envy. Really? Another commentary I crossed says, the brother's dislike was produced by Joseph's piety and other excellencies. And I don't take disagreeing with these old people (laughs) very lightly, who are surely more influential and wiser than me. But um, seriously? I think imagining Joseph as, a moral, as morally perfect causes us to miss the point of this text. And I don't think it's a high view of Scripture to tiptoe around the Bible's rough-edged characters. This isn't the story of a perfect, privileged child who is wronged. It's about a kid who gets himself tossed in a pit. But even there, and maybe especially there, God is present and God is in control. But Joseph's brothers hate him for four reasons that are really clearly spelled out in Genesis, and I think, I don't know, we can maybe all relate to why they're feeling this way. First of all, he is just straight up the favorite of his dad, and I think Jacob has probably said this outright to them, that Joseph is the favorite. He's the firstborn of Rachel, which is their 
his favorite wife. And, and, and this is a lesson in how things get passed down in families, right? Remember Isaac, uh, his favorite was Esau. Jacob was never his father's favorite. And so when Jacob has kids, that's the way he knows how to parent. And so he picks favorites himself. It's got me, I, I'm, as, uh, this is relevant in my life as um, we're expecting our firstborn in two weeks. And I'm thinking like, what are the habits that I have that I don't want my kid to have? Um, and there are plenty of them. And there are, there you reach an age at some point where you realize, whoa, that's my parents' habit. I don't have to have that habit. Or I am stuck with that habit or whatever it is. Um, but this favoritism has been passed down from, from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebecca um, to Jacob and now Leah and Rachel and their kids. And so the ten brothers um, who aren't the sons of Rachel don't like Rachel's kids. Second reason is um, Jacob, Jacob rats on him. He's 17 years old, so he should be in the field. He's, he's old enough to be working alongside of his brothers, but he has the special task of being the reporter, the messenger for his father. And so he goes out and he watches and, and, and he finds them doing something wrong and he reports back to the father. And no one likes that guy. It doesn't matter if he's a son or not. That guy's annoying. And the third reason is his father gives him this coat of many colors, which seems like a really small thing when coats are, you know, we have coats all over the place. Um, but, but, but having woven fabric that was dyed was a big deal. This is like the keys to the Porsche. I mean, this is not only is it, um, so, so it's a fancy coat, right? So he looks fly, but also um, it, it's a coat that was expensive, that was paid for with money that these brothers are working to earn. Secondly, it's probably an indication of the fact that when Jacob passes on, Joseph is going to inherit all of the stuff that these brothers are working for. He's going to be at least at the top of the list. And if they get anything else, it'll just be, it'll be lucky for them, right? So, so there are all sorts of reasons that they're infuriated when Joseph receives this coat that is not only expensive itself, but is symbolic of, of Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. And lastly, our passage doesn't, skips over two dreams that, Jacob has, that Joseph has. Maybe you're familiar with the dreams. Both of them are essentially Joseph is standing in the middle in one dream. He's a, he's a stalk of wheat in another. He's a star in the middle of them, the biggest and brightest star. And all of his brothers and even his father are all around him and they bow down before him. And Joseph is so pious that he goes out and tells them all about this dream that he had. And wants them to know how it went down. And you guys think this will happen? And so they hate him. And there is the interpretation that this vision is from God. But the Bible doesn't say that. Perhaps God wants Joseph to know that he's superior to his brothers. Maybe God wants Joseph to know that, hey, you're better than them. Go tell them about it. Or perhaps this dream is a working out of how Joseph views himself. Perhaps it is a starry night manifestation of Joseph's own inflated self-image. I think in the end, perhaps it is something of both. But I don't think it is necessary for Joseph to have this dream and go out and tell his brothers all about them. And I say that partly because at the end of the story, which we'll talk more about next week, this, this dream sort of comes true, except 
that when it comes true, Joseph realizes that he, and he rebukes his brother. He said, no, 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 no. And he falls on their shoulders and he cries. So it doesn't really come true. Where in, I don't want to get into it too much, but in this dream, he, he is the star and he loves it. But in the end, his brothers are around him and he just falls to his knees and weeps bitterly with them. Um, and so in a really important way, this dream doesn't come true. Um, and how Joseph gets to that place where he recognizes that the dream I had back then, like, it's kind of coming true, but, but that's, but not really, right? Not in the essence of it. Um, his brothers, anyways, so, so his brothers hate him because he's the favorite. He's got this coat. He tattles on him, tells him about this dream. He's an annoying 17-year-old younger brother. Really annoying to the point that they hate him like only brothers can. There's no real word for hate in Hebrew. Hate is abstract, and Hebrew doesn't really do abstract words. And so the word in Hebrew, I've heard it explained that the word is, hate is like to put strain in the bow. It's an action word, right? It's like cocking back the arm. That's what, they, they hated him, right? It's, it's not like this feeling they had. It's putting strain in the bow kind of hatred. It's an action verb. They hated him. And so they begin to plot, and at first they want to kill him. But Reuben is shrewd. I don't know if I had ever realized this, but Reuben's trying to get ahead. He knows this favoritism game his dad plays. So he says, no, 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 no. Put him in the pit, then we'll leave him. He'll die there. But he has plans to go back and rescue him, bring him back to his dad, and move up a couple notches in his dad's eyes. So they throw Joseph in the pit. They take Reuben's advice. But then Judah thinks, hey, let's make some shekels off of him. So they sell Joseph to the first people that come by who are heading down to Egypt They wipe their hands and they return to their father, telling him that a wild animal devoured Joseph. And there are 10 more chapters to this story, so you know it ain't done yet. And next week we'll read about the emotional ending to this saga, but our text this morning sets the scene of a story that's not about Joseph, humble, Christ-like, and that his piety finds himself in trouble, but rather that through the trouble he finds himself in, he also finds something of Christ within himself. It is not that he is so pious that he gets thrown into the pit, but that in the pit he learns something about real piety. Joseph's story highlights a tension that we see throughout Scripture and throughout our own lives. It is this tension that Christ is most present with us in when we are suffering, when we are with those who suffer, that God is with us most uniquely when we are in the pit. And yet at the same time, every week we talk about how God is for us, how God desires the flourishing of all people and all creation. It's what inspires our mission statement to seek the good of individuals and the welfare of the city because we believe those are the things God desires. And yet you hear the prayers of the people this morning and there is pain and suffering and pits that each of us wades through at some point in our life. We read Romans 8 and it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But these words, these are words that in the moment Joseph might have scoffed at. They are words he cannot believe when he is in the pit. As he is humbled, they are no comfort. But it is in the pit and on the road in chains where God is working in and through and alongside of Joseph 
that Romans verse doesn't end right there. It continues like this. For those God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God works for good. He desires good. But the good he is working in Joseph at the bottom of the pit is not the future riches that Joseph is going to come into. The point is not that if we're like Joseph, we'll get to become second in command. The good that God is doing in Joseph is the work of conforming him to the likeness of God, to the image of Christ. That is the transformation that needs to take place. That is what comes out of the other side of this trial for Joseph. Thomas Kelly again writes, the heart is stretched through suffering and enlarged. God works for good, but good looks like conformity to the image of his son. And the image of his son is the servant of all. God is going to use Joseph. He has like big plans for Joseph. And next week we'll look at those. But this week, God humbles Joseph. And he begins to find the heart of God in a pit. He hears the bang of the hound of heaven in the silence of suffering. Sarah laughs at God's plans. And Abraham falls on his faith, on his face, and yet somehow God credit, credit, credits it to, to them as faith. Jacob is on the run for all of his sins, and he isn't the recipient of God's promise to be with him because he's flattered God, but because God is the hound of heaven who loves Jacob too much to ever give up on him. And God is in control of Joseph's life. He is with him in the pit and on the journey to Egypt, not because there's anything particularly special about Joseph's race or intelligence or goodness, but because God is the hound of heaven, pursuing the one who is sold and the ones who sell. And if all of these stories seem redundant, it is because they are. If the story we tell each week at the table seems repetitive, it is because it is. Joseph's story is one in a long line of stories about a person at the bottom of a pit. And Joseph might as well be Zacchaeus up in a tree or Lazarus dead in a grave or a woman caught in adultery about to be stoned or a new mother paralyzed by anxiety caused by her own child or a breadwinner who has just lost his job or any person at that point in their lives where they wonder if they have any value or any meaning or any worth Each story is unique. They have their own characters and lessons and plots, but one way or another, they are all stories about the hound of heaven, baying relentlessly until he gets his love. God goes after Joseph, even when he has gotten himself thrown into a pit. And God goes after the brothers, even when they've committed fratricide. We are restless until we rest in God, But God is also restless until his children rest in his arms. An eternal drama is being acted out in your life. Do not believe that yours is mundane, that your life is meaningless. Do not think that your story is unimportant. Your story, with its pits and broken dreams and its messed up family systems, is telling the story of an eternal drama. Joseph reminds us that more is at hand than what we can see. Something greater and grander and far more beautiful is taking place 
in your life and in the lives of all people. The hound of heaven is good and he is loose on the earth. I'll close with this line from Thomas Kelly. After all, God is at work in the world. It is not we alone who are at work in the world, frantically finishing a work to be offered to God. We need not get frantic. He is at the helm. When our little day is done, we lie down quietly in peace, for all is well. An eternal drama is being played out, and the hound of heaven is loose on the earth. That is good news. Amen.